dig into your word, Lord. Lord, we want to hear your truth. We want to be cleansed by it, Lord. We want to be built up, Lord. We want to be drawn closer to your heart, Lord. We want to know you more. So I pray for our time together. We ask that you meet with us, Lord. And uh, Lord, fill that need that's deep within our heart, Lord. The concerns of our heart, Lord. The praises of our heart, Lord. Just for all you've done in our lives, Lord. Lord, desiring what you're going to do, Lord. Just make us more like Jesus. That you actually give us a heart, Lord, to want to be like Jesus. We thank you for that, Lord. Lord, forgive us. Lord, cleanse us, Lord, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. With clean hands of your heart, Lord. Lord, we just want to raise up, Lord Jesus, tonight, Lord, in our hearts and in our thoughts. Be pleased, Lord, in your church tonight, Lord. We pray for those who are hurting, Lord, Lord, those who are suffering and struggling, Lord, physically, Lord, spiritually, Lord. Lord, we pray that be strengthened tonight, Lord, that you meet with them wherever they are, Lord. Fill them afresh with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Lord, bring healing and comfort and peace, Lord. Lord, may they be able to enter into a peaceful rest, Lord, as we desire tonight, Lord, that we'd have a quiet spirit, Lord, just to hear that still small voice speak to our heart tonight, Lord. All that you have for us, Lord, may we just receive it, Lord, and respond to it, Lord. Lord, that you be glorified, Lord, in the work of your hands tonight, Lord. We thank you for our pastor, Lord, just to his diligence, Lord, his perseverance, Lord, to understand what you would want to share, Lord, through him tonight. Bless him and keep him. Pray for Jackie, Lord. And Lord, we just thank you again, Lord. We just if some of the things you would just go on, Lord, but hear our hearts tonight, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.
Oh.
Welcome. Glad you're here. Everybody doing okay tonight? 
I'm feeling good. Thank you for your prayers. Keep my honey in prayer. She's not doing so great, but God is good to us. Uh, by the way, uh, for Pastor Billy's Bible study tomorrow, it's still on at 11 o'clock. So if you come, continue to come. And if it does get changed somehow, then we'll let you know for sure. Billy will, okay? Uh, let's pray once again. And Father, we thank you that you're a God that extends grace to us uh, always and continually and without fail. We thank you, Father, for your mercies that were new this morning, for your love that never changes, regardless of what we do or don't do. Lord, you still love us, and how incredible it is to know that. So we ask that you would be our teacher tonight, that you'd help us to glean whatever it is that each of us personally needs to glean from this passage. And help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen, amen. So if you'd open up your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 21, <clears throat> we're going to complete this whole chapter, Lord willing. And tonight's message is entitled, Ahab's Rebellion and God's Grace. Isn't it wonderful that even when we're in rebellion, God gives us grace? And we see this over and over again in Ahab's life. We're going to see it once again. Uh, and last time uh, we met, we saw that there was a great compromise in, in King Ahab. Ahab, as you know, was married to wicked Queen Jezebel. And it's a history of, of difficulties and trouble uh, because of rebellion. Well, God had promised uh, him victory, Ahab victory, in order to gain Ahab's attention so that he would know that the God is who he says he is. And Ahab, we know, didn't follow the Lord. And God is just trying to get his attention he, that he's an all-powerful, all-knowing God. And God also desired to reveal that to another man, another king, Ben-Hadad of Syria, the Syrians were defeated by Israel, remember, and they made an excuse. And here's what they said in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 23. They said, And the servants of the king of Syria, that's speaking of Ben-Hadad, said unto him, Their gods, the gods of Israel, are gods of the hills. Therefore they are stronger than we, but let's fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they are. So they said, well, the only reason that they beat us is because he's the God of the hills. We fought the battle in the hills. We're going to take him out in a plane. Well, that turns out it wasn't the case at all. And we know that Ahab was instructed by God to slay the Syrians and Ben-Hadad. He said, don't take any prisoners. You need to take care of these people because if you don't, then they're going to come back later on. And, and we saw the example of of King Saul, remember in 1 Samuel chapter 15, very similarly, Saul was told to utterly destroy the Amalekites, and there was good reason for that, but they didn't. They, God says, destroy them, all the people, all the animals, and so on, and of course, they didn't do that. And later on, Saul would be killed by an Amalekite. Well, Ahab spared Ben-Hadad, in both cases, as within Ahab and with Saul, they disobeyed God. And as we saw at the close of chapter 20, the promise of God to Ahab, and here's what he said in verses 42 and 43 of 1 Kings 20. 
And he, speaking of the prophet, said to him, to Ahab, Thus saith the Lord, because thou hast let go out of thine hand a man who was Ben-Hadad, whom I appointed to, utterly to utter destruction, therefore thy life shall go for his life, and thy people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house heavy and displeased, and came to Samaria. You see, it should have been a great day. It should have been a day of victory, had Ahab done what he should have done. But now it's a dismal day for him. And, and you, know, you know what rebellion is like. When we rebel against God, it's never a happy day, is it? It's always a dismal day because there's something in our heart we know isn't right with the Lord. And praise God for his Holy Spirit that stirs us in such a way that he, we know that he acknowledges what we've done so that we can acknowledge what we've done and bring it back before God in confession and repentance. And, of course, that brings rest, restoration. So Ahab knew that God would judge because God promised that he would judge him. So we're going to pick up in chapter 21, verse 1. It says, And it came to pass after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, hard or beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So some number of years has passed. There's some level of peace, a short period of peace between Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel after that last battle. And a man named Naboth tells us here that he had a vineyard right next to the palace of King Ahab. city of Samaria, we know, is the capital of northern Israel. And Ahab and his wife Jezebel had a palace there, but also a palace in Jezreel. So Naboth, next-door neighbors, probably not the best neighbors in the world, his neighbors are Ahab and Jezebel. So verse 2, and Ahab spoke unto Nadab, or Naboth, excuse me, saying, he says, give me thy vineyard that I may have it for a garden of herbs because it is near unto my house and I will give you for a better vineyard than it or if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money. So he offers him a trade. He says, listen, I'll give you land for land. Your land, your vineyard next to our house, and I'll give you another piece of land, and if you're not satisfied with that, I'll pay you for it. But Naboth, we see in verse 3, said to Ahab, the Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. So he refused based on the inheritance regulations from the law of Moses. And this is found in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 23 through 28. When Israel came into the promised land, God said, the land is mine. It all belongs to me. And you are basically a renter here, so to speak. But God said, and he's gracious, he said, I'm going to share it with you. And when the land was divided among the 12 tribes of Israel, according to Moses and Joshua, the land that was given to the tribes and their families was not to pass ownership of those, from those families, except under very certain extraordinary circumstances. And even if a family was forced to sell their land because of economic hardship, it was only to be for a time, because in this event called the year of Jubilee, all the land would go back to the former owners. And the family then would have the land back. It belonged to the family. And the idea behind this was that God wanted to prevent the land of Israel from being taken and gobbled up by the wealthy during the ebb and flow of national life. I mean, economics change. We know this. So God says, regardless of what happens, I don't want you to surrender that land. 
The wealthy were prevented, therefore, from buying up the land on a permanent basis. And this was God's protection so that his nation, the nation of Israel, wouldn't be in the hands of a few people, but rather that everyone would have a stake in the land and it was a place of security. That was God's reasoning and rationale behind the whole thing. Ownership could not change hands, but the land could be loaned or leased to others. Leviticus 25, verse 23 says, The land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And this is a way that, an important way that God reminded Israel that their real home, and as it is with us too, our real home is in heaven with him. And they were only strangers. They were sojourners, visitors on this earth, the same as we are today. You know, we're not citizens. We're citizens of this country. But more importantly, we're citizens of heaven, aren't we? Our home is in heaven. Peter the Apostle said this in 1 Peter 2.11. He said, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So God says, I'm putting safeguards in place. Your citizenship is in heaven. In Hebrews eleven thirteen, this is the, the, the chapter in Hebrews, the hall of faith. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. So here in 1 Kings chapter 21, the land that belonged to a given family that could be leased to another could be purchased out of the lease by an individual called a kinsman redeemer. And it could be done because of need. If there was financial hardship, a kinsman redeemer, a blood relative, could, could purchase the land. Now we find the role of kinsman redeemer in Leviticus 25, verses 24 through 28. And here's what it says. And in all the land of your possession, you shall grant a redemption for the land, if thy brother be waxen poor and hath sold away some of his possession, and if any of his kin come to redeem it, then he shall redeem that which his brother sold. And if the man have none to redeem it, and himself be able to redeem it, then let him count the years of the sale thereof and restore the overplus unto the man to whom he sold it, that he may return unto his possession. But if he be not able to restore it to him, then that which is sold shall remain in the hand of him that hath bought it until the year of Jubilee, and in the Jubilee it shall go out, and he shall return unto his possession. The redemption of the land was accomplished through one called a kinsman redeemer. In the Hebrew, it's the word goel. He was a designated close relative of the landowner, a blood relative who had the right and responsibility to purchase the poor out of their poverty and loss. And this is an incredible picture here of a, a wonderful picture of Jesus, our kinsman redeemer who purchased us from sin. You know, 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You see, we belong to him because he purchased us. In the book of Ruth, chapter 3, it describes a kinsman redeemer, that transaction. And there was a woman named Naomi who returned from Moab, poor and in debt, and her nearest kinsman redeemer is willing to back the, buy back the land for her, but stopped short when he found out that he would also have to marry her daughter-in-law named Ruth. He says, no, I, I'm, not, I'm not willing. 
that was to be an heir for the property. Well, when this kinsman redeemer refused, there was another man next in line. His name was Boaz, the, the next closest kinsman redeemer, and he stepped right out and into love with Ruth. Now, a kinsman redeemer, one who was able to buy back, he had, there was four requirements. The first had to be related by blood, Related by blood. Now think about this. Jesus took on human flesh in order to fulfill the role of kinsman redeemer for us. He was able to redeem us from sin because we are related to him by blood. Galatians 4 verses 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So, yes, we are related. Second requirement, he had to be free himself. Jesus could only save us if he was free of sin himself. Because you couldn't redeem a person of debt if you're under the same debt as they are. That's why man cannot redeem man. We need a redeemer, a perfect redeemer, kinsman redeemer whose name is Jesus. And he did redeem us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Third, the kinsman redeemer had to have a price of redemption. Well, only Jesus had the price of redemption. He's the only one that could pay the price of our sin. 1 Peter 1.18 it says, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The fourth requirement, the kinsman redeemer had to provide the work of redemption willingly. There's no forcing, there's no coercion. He had to do it willingly. And when we look at John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, it says, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment has I re have I received of my Father. Nobody forced Jesus. He laid down his life willingly. He met all the requirements of kinsman redeemer. Well, back to 1 Kings 21. Apparently, Ahab, King Ahab, wanted this to be a permanent transaction. He wanted this land. But Naboth is a God-fearing Israelite, and he's obedient. We see this here, obedient to the Mosaic law. This was most important to him, so he refused to sell his inheritance even to a king. His refusal wasn't about a vineyard or even about a piece of land primarily. It was about a principle. Notice, he didn't say, I refuse to sell you the land. He refers to the land as the inheritance of my fathers. It's more than just a price tag. It's the inheritance of my fathers. It's about my family and the land that God has given us in inheritance. God said the land was given to me and to my family. And, of course, he's thinking, my, my father's before me. They've been faithful. They haven't sold it. They kept it in the family name. All of my descendants who will come after me are trusting that I'll be as faithful as my father's before. So I'm not selling this land for any price. 
said the Lord forbids it. He views Ahab's proposal as a violation of God's law, which it was. So Ahab, or excuse me, Naboth lived up to his responsibility, a man of great conviction. He's doing what was pleasing to God and a man of principle. He's doing what's right and willing to pay a price for it. And sometimes we pay a price for doing what's right too, don't we? We, we know that we have to take a stand for the Lord. We have to take a stand for what the Bible says, no matter what society says, no matter what other people say. What are we called to do? We're called to be obedient to what God says because his standards are right. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. He said, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Jesus said, blessed are you if you do what's right, and you get persecuted for it. So Naboth, he took a stand for God. Look at verse 4. And Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid him down upon his bed and turned away his face and wouldn't eat any bread. Now, there's high drama here in Jezreel, isn't there? My goodness. We're going to see that Jezebel also is going to be very upset with him for all the wrong reasons. But here he said, he he didn't give me what I wanted. You You can almost hear the whining in his voice, can't you? I'm just going to lay down in bed and I'm not going to eat anything. Well, it's like the height of covetousness, isn't it? Ahab, as king, he has all a man could possibly ever want. Palaces, vineyards, riches, and yet he wants Naboth's vineyard. A covetous heart is never satisfied, is it? No. Ahab wasn't satisfied, and, and perhaps he had some fear of Jezebel, too. I'm sure that's the case. But Jezebel, verse 5, his wife came to him and said unto him, Why is thy spirit so sad that thou eatest no bread? Come on now, you got to eat. Why are you so sad? And Ahab said this in verse 6, he said to her, Because I spake unto Naboth the Jezreelite and said unto him, Give me thy vineyard for money, or else if it please thee, I will give thee another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give thee my vineyard. So Ahab twists a conversation that he had with Naboth in his favor. He says, Naboth outright refused me, deliberately disrespectful. We know that's not the case. The real heart of the matter is Naboth wanted to obey God. That was his biggest concern. And Ahab never mentioned that Naboth's answer was based on principle and obedience to the law of Moses. He hides that little secret from Jezebel, right? Well, Jezebel, then being the understanding wife that she is, she said to him, verse 7, Dost thou not govern the kingdom of Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let thy heart be merry. I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth, the, the, the Jezreelite. In other words, Ahab, aren't you the king? And you as king, you take no for an answer? Where I come from, kings know their kings. They know their kings and they get their way. You want the land, then you should have taken it. 
So arise and let thine heart be merry. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth. And I'll show you how it's done. Verse 8. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent the letters unto the elders and to the nobles that were in his city dwelling with Naboth. And she wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth on high among the people and set two men, sons of Belial, and others liars, before him to bear witness against him saying, Thou didst blaspheme God and the king and then carry him out and stone him that he may die. The idea is this. She said, proclaim a fast, plant a seed of thought among the people that there is a curse upon Jezreel because of some hidden sin. And God's about to curse the city because of this sin. And only he knows about it. Well, clearly, Jezebel knows a little bit about the Bible because blasphemy against God, according to the law of Moses, it's a capital crime. Punishable by death. She knows that a matter is established at the mouth of two or three witnesses. So she hires two false witnesses to testify against Naboth and get him convicted. The appearance of breaking the law of Moses, that's all it is. All she wants is the vineyard. And she's going to do everything she can in order to obtain it. So, verse 11 and the men of this, his city, even the elders and the nobles who were the inhabitants in his city, did as Jezebel had sent unto them, and as it was written in the letters which she had sent unto them. I guess the lesson is never help a Jezebel. Divisive, cruel, dangerous spirit, never trust a Jezebel. And how can you identify a Jezebel? Well, there's a spirit there that's not right. And the caution is, steer clear. These men listened to her. And Naboth, they sent out to be stoned. So, verse 12, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth on high among the people. And there came in two men, children of Belial, and sat before him. And the men of Belial witnessed against him, even against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth did blaspheme God and the king. Then they carried him forth out of the city and stoned him with stones that he died. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth is stoned and he is dead. So news comes back to Jezebel that the execution of Naboth was carried out. Now, 2 Kings tells us that Naboth's sons were killed also. And this is an important thing to understand because if Naboth's killed, he's got relatives, right? He's got descendants. So not only did they take out Naboth, but took his sons out. Second Kings 9.26 says, Surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, saith the Lord. And I will requite thee in this plat, saith the Lord. Now therefore take and cast him into the plot of ground according to the word of the Lord. Naboth is eliminated, his successors were eliminated. And this was perfectly natural at the time for the land to get yielded to the king if there were no descendants. So now Ahab assumes ownership. And it came to pass, verse 15, when Jezebel heard that Naboth was stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give thee for money. For Naboth is not alive, 
but dead. And it came to pass when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, that Ahab rose up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. To be sure, the king had to ask a question or two. What, what caused this chain of events? What caused the surrender of the vineyard? And God will hold him responsible for what happened because he's the king. He's accountable. He is responsible. So he must know something about it, and he wants to know as much as he can. Well, so be it. God is still going to judge. The Lord knows. In verse 17, and the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Now Elijah the prophet comes back on the scene. Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel. Notice, he says, the king of Israel. In other words, he's responsible which is in Samaria, behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, whether he has gone down to possess it. Again, God holds him responsible, and he sends the prophet Elijah to him face to face in that vineyard. God says it's Naboth's vineyard. Doesn't acknowledge the vineyard as anyone else's but Naboth. And thou, verse 19, shall speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Hast thou killed and also taken possession? And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus saith the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick the blood even thine. So apparently, they had just, rather than burying Naboth's body, after they stoned him, they just laid him out in the open. The body was left in the place where he was stoned, and the dogs would come and lick up his blood. Kind of gross. Yeah, it is gross. <laughs> and the prophet said to Ahab, the dogs will lick your blood just as they lick Naboth's blood. And Ahab said to Elijah, verse 20, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? And he answered, I have found thee, because thou hast sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. So here's Ahab. Now he's beginning to argue a bit with Elijah. It's like every time I see you, Elijah, you've got a message of condemnation for me. He thinks there's something wrong with Elijah. You know, like, why are you picking on me? Rather than accepting responsibility for his own wrongdoing. And there's people like that. There's people that won't accept responsibility. They can't see or refuse to see that there's something in their life that may have caused something. Operating with blinders on you know, the, the old blame game. And we know where that started, don't we? All the way back to the book of Genesis. Adam said, you gave me the woman. Like, God, it's your problem, right? And the blame game goes on and on and on. And you also see it, sadly, for those that have been trapped in addictions. Always oh, seems to be somebody else's fault. You know, blame dad or mom or this job or that job or my past, whatever it might be. And it's just the, it's the way it is, and it's really, really sad. Because I believe that the first step to, to recovery is admitting and coming to the Lord and say, God, I need your help. Rather than blaming somebody else for these things. Well, I can go on about that, but I won't do that. So, <clears throat> Elijah, he continued in verse 21, Behold, I will bring evil upon thee, and I will take thy posterity, and I will cut off from Ahab him. And this is a very odd expression in the King James, him that pisseth against the wall. It's kind of gross. He's talking about all male descendants. 
slave or free throughout Israel. Cut off from Ahab all of his descendants. Cut your lineage off from history. In other words, Ahab, you're through. You're done. Your name is through. And that's one of the worst things that could happen to a Jew in that day. No descendants, no one to carry on the family name, and it was devastating to them. And Elijah said to him, your descendants are done, and you're done as well. And of Jezebel, verse 23, also spake the Lord, saying, the dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Him that dieth of Ahab in the city, the dog shall eat. And him that dieth in the field shall the fowls of the air eat. So Elijah, given a word from God, he's prophesying that Jezebel's going to die in such a way that she won't be buried. And like Naboth, she'd be left out for the dogs to eat her. Now, in the culture of that day, dogs were a little bit different than, than they are today. You know, they're pretty well domesticated. But back then, they were wild scavengers. They would eat anything. They would eat garbage that was left out. So what we have is a grim picture here that God is painting through Elijah. Jezebel, you're going to be treated like trash because of what you've done. You're going to be consumed by the dogs. An interesting thing as we continue in this historical account, we're not going to get to it today, but just as God prophesied Ahab's death and his blood being licked up by the dogs, Jezebel will die sometime later when another man named Jehu becomes king and she's thrown from a window under Jehu's orders and she dies. And then Jehu, he decides, well, I'm going to go get something to eat. And while he's eating, he told a couple of his servants, go out and bury her. He probably looked out the window, there's their body, go take care of this woman. And when they went to bury her, they found that there was nothing left but her skull, her hands, and her feet. What an appetizer, right? They went to take care of the body, and the body was gone. And Jehu said, this fulfills the work of the Lord and the word of the Lord that was spoken to Elijah. God prophesied it, carried it out just as he had said. You know, family, God's word is true. When God speaks, it's always truth. And I'm so thankful that, that you're students of God's Word. You study God's Word. You trust God's Word. You have faith in God's Word. You walk in God's Word. Because God's Word is not going to go away. You know, people try to rewrite this book. They try to discount this book. But you know what? It's never going to pass away. Jesus said so. So what do we do? We hold on to it. And we learn it. And we grow. And we walk in the truth. And when you walk in the truth, when we walk in the truth, listen... There's no substitute for that, is there? Certainly it costs Naboth his life, but where is he? He's a man that went home to be with the Lord. So it came to pass, verse 27, when Ahab heard those words that he rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his flesh. In fact, I think I missed a verse too. Verse 25, let me back up. But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel his wife stirred up or incited. And he did very abominably by in following idols according to all things, as did the Amorites, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. In other words, he's no better than the Amorites. And it came to pass when Ahab heard those words 
that he rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went softly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Seest thou how Ahab humbled himself before me? Because he humbleth himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but in his son's days will I bring this evil upon his house. Notice, he said, see how Ahab has humbled himself. Doesn't say that he repented. He humbled himself. He, he couldn't fool God. So here's God again, recognizes that this isn't true repentance. There's some level of humility. But God is trying. God is trying. God is trying to get Ahab's attention still one more time, time after time after time. You know, as we've studied this in the last couple of chapters, the life of Ahab, we've seen God's mercy upon Ahab, trying to gain his attention. But Ahab wouldn't listen. Trying to nurture Ahab just one step toward God to bring him to repentance in order to change his eternal destiny. That's God's heart. And isn't that fascinating to come to know the Lord one day and, and to think and to realize that God was there all the time in my life. God was continually trying to pursue me, seeking me out all the time. And you look back and you see how God has been working and how much grace upon grace upon grace has been accumulated on your life. And he has measured it out to you. Until it finally, one day, it clicked in and you said, oh, yes, now I see. I get it now. That this God loves me. That this God that, that you've been talking about, whoever might have been speaking with you, the God that, that you've been speaking to me about, he spared my life. And he preserved me in order that I would be saved. I am so thankful, family, that there were people that persevered in my life, praying for me, even though I rejected them. I don't want to hear what you have to say. I've got my own religion. You keep to yourself. But you know what? I could silence the words to me, but I couldn't silence the prayers to God, could I? And neither could you. And I am so thankful for those people. And you know, when we come to Christ... We understand that we have a happy ending, don't we? We have a glorious hope. We have a hope that the world cannot even consider apart from Jesus Christ. Even though there's many, many people that try to put their hope here. But you know, as we look at society around us, as we look at the world around us, even for the, the, the unbeliever, I can't imagine that they look around and don't see that there's something seriously wrong. That something is really out of whack. That this world seems to be falling apart. But then all along, those of us that know Jesus, we see, well, there's a God in heaven that has made a promise to me. Not based on what I have done, but on his finished work of the cross. A God that loves me and his love, it's his love that apprehended my heart and, and carries me past all this stuff that we see right now. All the difficulty in the world, all the pain and suffering. And, you know, that's not going to go away. But you know what? Our hope is, is not here. Our hope is in heaven. And I'm so grateful for the hope that God has given me and to given to you. You know, maybe there's somebody 
that's listening to this message a little bit later on. I don't know. And, and you realize that, that my name is, is rightfully mud because I've really messed up. I've messed up in my family or in my school or in my work, wherever you are, and you wonder, will God give me a second chance? And when I read accounts like this of a man named Ahab, considered to be one of the worst kings, one of the most wicked kings of Israel, God gave him not only a first chance, a second chance, a third chance, and on and on. And Ahab ultimately chose his own destiny, which was his doom. And I don't know how many chances God gave me. Because there's opportunities and chances that God gave me that I don't even know about where he could have easily, very quickly and easily said, okay, that's enough. You've rejected me long enough, Dan. But no, he gave me chance after chance after chance. And certainly there's a God in heaven, a God of first and second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth, whatever chances and the person might ask, is there, is there a God that will have grace for me? Is there a God in heaven that loves me? Is there, a God, is there a God in heaven that cares for me, cares about my life? And I would say, yes, absolutely. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God that's revealed to us in the Scriptures. No wonder the enemy wants to take this book and get it out of your hands. Because it's a love story that God has written for me and for you. It's a love story that continually invites relationship. God says, just come to me. And I've heard people say, you know what? If I ever stepped foot in a church, you'd probably burn the church down. No, no, no. Your sin isn't that great compared to the forgiveness that God grants. Or you don't know how bad a person I am. You know, I've heard that before too. I don't need to know. God knows. And God's bigger than all that too. He's willing and he's ready to forgive. He forgives to the uttermost. The God of the Bible. And yet as we read this account, we see God reaching out to Ahab, the worst king Israel's had up to this point. And it leads me to say this, that there's no one that's beyond God's grace and beyond his forgiveness. There's only one unforgivable sin, and that is denying the Lord Jesus on this side of heaven before you die. Denying the Lord Jesus, not receiving his grace and love and forgiveness of sin. That's the only thing God can't forgive. As people go to their grave every day apart from Christ, then you know what? They're faced with an eternity that's not pretty. When all he's asking is, just come to me on my terms, and I'll give you forgiveness. And it requires more than just humbling oneself. It requires repenting of sin. Knowing how serious that, that sin is. And we need to take sin seriously, don't we? Because the Bible tells that sin separates us from God. But God has provided a solution. He doesn't want that barrier there any longer. He doesn't want that separation. He's just looking for someone to come to him, humble themselves, and repent from sin and find forgiveness. You see, sin grieves God. 
And when, it, when we know something grieves God, it should grieve us too. That's part of the repentance process. We need to put our faith in Jesus for forgiveness. Enter into the kind of relationship that, that God wanted all along. You know, for many years, family, I didn't understand what a relationship with God was all about because I thought that, you know, if, if, I, just, if I just do this, this, this stuff, these things, week after week after week, and I, I go to church and I do this and I stand and I sit and I kneel and all the other things that go along with that, I'm going to be just fine. And I remember there was a, a, a young lady that babysat for our children and she went to the same denominational church that we did with her family. And one Sunday, it was like a huge scandal, you know, buzzing throughout this whole church. And people were saying, did you hear about so-and-so? I won't, I won't mention a name. She left the Catholic church. She's going to hell because she no longer comes here. And I thought, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. How could she? But she realized before I did that God isn't interested in, in what we do it's in terms of a, a ritual or a practice or whatever it might be. He's interested in our heart. And this young lady realized that. And it's something I'll never forget because people were angry. They were mad at her. Her parents were up in arms. And yet, she stood against that wave and came to Christ. And, you know, maybe some of you went through similar things in your life, too. And it took a few years after that before I came to Jesus, too, but I can look back in that now and say, you know, I'm so grateful that it's not about what I do. It's about what God has done on my behalf. And I can embrace him as a God that really loves me and he's interested in what's in here. And he wants this, this relationship with me that I can't describe in, in English language or human terms. It's a relationship that the creator of the universe wants with every single one of us. And it's the most important, beautiful love relationship that you'll ever find anywhere. Because I know that no one can love me like my Father in heaven. I know you folks love me, and I love you too. I know my wife loves me, and I love her too. I know my kids and my grandkids love me, and I love them too. But nobody can love me like my Father in heaven. Because his love never changes. I can't force him to love me any more than he does. And I can't force him to love me any less than he does. Because he just loves me. And that's the grace of God. So my point is this. There's, there's hope for mankind. There's hope for every single person. There has always been hope. And God would say, listen, I'm here for you. I love you. And I have grace for you. And I've been reaching out to you for a long, long time. And tonight's the night for you to be saved. That's what God's, that's what God's invitation's all about. Come unto me, come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Spirit and the bride say, come. What a gift, huh? 
Merry Christmas to me. (laughs) What a gift God has given us in His Son, Jesus Christ. Praise Him. Praise Him. Praise Him. And you know, I know there's a lot of Ahabs, so to speak, in the world. They're all over. But you know what? God doesn't love me any more than He loves them. Those that shared with me back before I knew Christ, God didn't love those folks any more than He loved me. He always loved me. Always. And He always will. So, Father, we we come to you tonight. And the lessons from our Old Testament sometimes, they're they're so so clear to me that, that you're a God of love. That you're a God that perseveres. You're a God that's long-suffering and you're patient even with the Ahabs of the world, the Jezebels of the world, the Mees of the world, Lord. There's plenty of, plenty of rebellion in the world, yet God, you continue to pour out your love. And Lord, I pray that each of us would be able to rejoice in in the God of our salvation, the God who loved us enough to save us. So we bring our hearts to you now and thank you, Lord, that we have the hope that, that the world cannot offer, that we have the peace that the world cannot offer because we have the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, Jesus Christ, our Savior. So help us, help us, Lord, to apprehend all that you have for us in terms of acknowledging your love, acknowledging your forgiveness, acknowledging your mercy upon our lives. And Lord, I thank you for for each person who took the time to share with me. And I'm sure going through all of our minds here tonight, there's someone or several people that, that we can think about, that we can thank you for, that took the time that expressed the love, that persevered in sharing the truth, even when it it seemed painful to them because of the consequences of sharing it. As I know I wasn't nice to some people, Lord, and it breaks my heart to think that, but I'm grateful. I'm grateful that they did. I'm grateful that you are who you are. And we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.